The Litro Lab Podcast. New World Street by Hannah Hart. I heard the crash. A lamp had been knocked over. My heart pounded. I padded across the hallway, drawn to the commotion. It was the first night in our new home, half past my tenth birthday. My parents' bedroom door was closed. Pressing my ear against the cold brass keyhole, I heard murmurings. Nothing I could make out. Quietly, I turned the glass knob. A gentle push, and the door creaked open. Inside, my mother was holding my father's shaking hands, consoling him in his sweat-soaked pajamas. Spishik, you're safe. Not in the gulag. The war. It's been over. Twenty-two <sighs> years. Try to sleep. Shh. Just sleep. I crouched to my mother's side of the mahogany four-poster bed, tugged on her green silk negligee and whispered, Mama, is Daddy okay? Everything is fine. Don't worry. But Mama... He'll be fine, really. Now back to your room, please. Slinking into bed, I hugged my feather pillow so hard the spines prickled my arms. I listened and didn't sleep, then silence. I did not believe my mother that everything would be fine. The next morning, I got up early and wiggled into my red and green plaid jumper, our parochial school uniform. My father had finished up in the bathroom. He smelled of brill cream and aqua velva cologne. A barrel-chested picture of good health, he was my hero. I never tired of his war stories. How he fought Nazi general Desert Fox Rommel in North Africa, then became a pilot for the British Royal Air Force. That morning, I scrutinized him as never before. The security clearance badge and photo ID, hung from a string around his neck, read B.F. Goodrich, Research and Development Chemist. My father was one of a handful of immigrant technical experts hired during the post-war economic boom in Akron, Ohio, the birthplace of my mother. He wore a narrow striped tie and gray slacks. Pens filled the plastic pocket protector on his crisp white shirt. Oh, yes. And cordovan wingtip shoes with regulation steel toe inserts. Everything appeared as usual. Yet something was different. It was the first time I remember being frightened for my father. Daddy, last night, that was you, wasn't it? Never you mind, he said in a strong Polish accent. It's nothing for your worries. He pushed his black, brow-lined, bifocal, wire-rimmed glasses up his nose. Now go eat breakfast. Don't be late. Then it came. The lecture. Study hard. Always remember, you live in the greatest country on earth. My father kissed my mother, me, and my six siblings goodbye. He backed down the driveway in our light blue four-door Chevrolet Impala station wagon. On his face was a wide, this is the American dream smile. He was admiring his purchase, a 1930s five-bedroom, four-bath, red brick colonial on an elm tree-lined dead-end street. Off he drove waving. Downtown Akron was 15 minutes away. A hard right onto West Exchange Street and gritty smokestacks coughing black dust would come into view. The air had an unmistakable industrial scent of foul-smelling heated rubber. The tumult that jolted me from a sound sleep the night before was never mentioned. Nothing was explained. During my girlhood, my father's Bishop's nightmares, 
and his fiery piano renditions of Chopin's polonaises caused in me both deep concern and boundless curiosity about his past. Listening to his stories unlocked the mystery to his nightmares. Collecting stories was as natural to me as breathing. They were the narrative DNA that connected me to my father, his family whom we never saw, and the homeland he was forced to leave behind. When I became older, however, his anecdotes were filled with violence, terror, racism, and suffering, stories that made me cry. Zbyshik's nightmares began the first day of September, 1939. Before sunrise, Adolf Hitler mounted a blitzkrieg on Poland. Luftwaffe dive bombers, German warships, and U-boats, and one and a half million Wehrmacht soldiers decimated the country. The destruction to non-military targets and the resulting loss of life of ordinary citizens stunned the world. That day, he was vacationing with his siblings and my grandmother Adela at Krenitsejoy, a popular spa resort in the Beskid Sondetsky Mountains. My grandfather Stanislav had left three days earlier to prepare their apartment for emergency conditions after troops were mobilized to Warsaw. President Ignacy Muszczycki's radio address that Poland was under attack caused panic-stricken summer crowds to rush the local trains. Before dusk, the Hart family managed to elbow their way onto the last standing-room-only rail car to Lvov, today's Lviv, Ukraine. By morning, they were among the stampede of weary travelers pushing and shoving through the Lvov Central Railway Station. Stay close together, Adela yelled, gripping the arm of her tow-headed nine-year-old daughter, Rita. She kept a watchful eye on Jan, her spectacled 17-year-old son with a penchant for trouble-seeking. Zbyshik led the pack with his strong shoulders, maneuvering through the unruly throngs like a center-forward footballer. When he pushed open the train station front doors, acrid smoke stung their eyes and nostrils. The cityscape was dotted with ruined churches, crushed homes, and smoldering buildings. Ambulance sirens blared. Auxiliary police shouted into megaphones, Keep moving! The mayor wants everyone to find shelter! The streets were lined with the wounded and the dead. Adela recognized acquaintances among the carnage. That's Mrs. Bartofsky. Oh no, her husband! And, and Mrs. Reuterman! Dear God! Little Frannick! is gone! Her gaze fixed on a distinctive bald head face down on the pavement in a pool of blood. The gray pinstripe suit was familiar. She fought back the urge to panic. No, it can't be. Adela broke from the line. With all her might, she pushed the body over. Staring back was a single, icy blue eye, glazed over and lifeless. She recoiled in horror. Half the face was missing. This man was not Stanislaw. Where is my husband, Adela cried. Climbing the steep hill near the Polytechnic University, they found their gargoyle-studded apartment building, a new world street, intact. Adela raced up the wooden staircase to the top floor. There she found Stanislaw, still wearing his bank lawyer's gray pinstripe suit, and flew into his arms. The next day, Zbyshik reported for duty with the 3rd Company Cadet Corps. 
he was issued a Huda SHL 98 motorbike. Your orders, his lieutenant captain said, are to monitor foreign army movements and call Central Command with your findings. Do not, I repeat, do not engage the enemy. The blonde, square-jawed cadet stood tall and saluted, Yes, sir, for God, honor, and fatherland. In Wichikovsky Cemetery, Zbyshek pressed his back against a cold mausoleum wall. He held his pistol and ducked for cover. Beads of sweat dripped down his forehead. German patrols were scattered on a nearby north ridge. Those bastards! What stunned him into disbelief was the movement of Russian soldiers. Shit! The Russians! Due east! Refocusing the binoculars, he checked again and again. They weren't lying. He swallowed hard. What the hell? Grabbing his motorbike handles, he slammed the kickstarter down with his boot and zoomed southeast on the narrow, bumpy path between the gravestones. Dazed, he barely heard the Germans shouting, Halt! Halt! as bullets whizzed in the distance. Retreating to a safer zone, Zbyshek contacted his commanding officer. What he saw in the cemetery would fester in the far reaches of his mind. He reported that Russia and Germany, his country's historic arch-enemies, were on the offensive in Lvov. What he kept to himself was the frightening realization that Poland was doomed. In his later years, my father was admitted to an extended care unit to recover from a bad fall. Pain medication jumbled his memory. Nurses overheard him say, The Germans and Russians are coming, before he jumped out a first-floor window and escaped the facility. In a follow-up photograph, my father is semi-smiling. Perhaps he was a bit proud of the deep violet and red shiner covering the left side of his face. The nurses claimed he was hallucinating and changed his medication. They were right to do so. However, I knew the story of my dad's escape from Wichikovsky Cemetery. The nexus of my father's seemingly strange behavior was not hallucinatory. It was a flashback. On September 22nd, Adela and Stanislaw Hart watched stone-faced as a Russian soldier affixed a two-story banner of Supreme Commander Joseph Stalin to the facade of the Grand Opera House in Lvov as columns of shabbily dressed, sullen-looking Red Army soldiers marched down Hetmanska Street. We need to leave the city, Stanislaw told Adela. More and more Russians will come. Stanislaw's plan for the family to escape together never materialized. The notoriously brutal Soviet secret police, the NKVD, stormed Lvov on the heels of the Red Army and took control of the city. News came that a German-Soviet treaty of friendship had been signed. The Soviet Union now ruled the eastern half of Poland. After a rigged election, Polish Lvov became Russian Lvov and was incorporated into western Ukraine. Anyone opposed to the new communist regime Polish intellectuals, Jewish bourgeoisie, and Ukrainian nationalists became targeted for annihilation. Instantaneously, the Hart family had become enemies of the people. Wednesday, October 25, 1939, the Hart family apartment. The thunder of heavy boots climbing the wooden staircase woke everyone in the household. 
It was the dead of night. A surge of adrenaline jolted Adela out of bed. Racing to the window, she drew back the curtains. Terror. A black Maria prison truck with an armed guard was parked on the street below, near the apartment entrance. Rifle butts cracked against the solid oak, eight-foot front door. Police, open up! Stosh, dear God, it's them, Adela said, choking out the words. Dad, we can fight off those frigs, Jan said, running into his parents' bedroom with his father's sword cane. No, Stanislaw said, pulling a navy wool suit jacket and pants over his pajamas. There will be no violence in this home. Police, police! The front door strained under the pounding. Mama Rita whimpered, pressing into her mother's silk robe. Adela pulled her daughter closer. Ma'am, what would you have me do, Marinka said. The young Ukrainian housemaid's angelic face was flushed, her eyes cast down. Stanislaw held Adela's hand. He walked his family to the center of the living room under the chandelier. Keep calm, everyone, Stanislaw said, directing a stern glance at Jan. Marinka, let them in. Fidgeting with her golden-brown plait, Marinka stepped hesitantly down the hallway. When she opened the door, two militiamen in blue uniforms with red armbands pushed past her. No one move, the slender militiaman shouted, aiming a Tokarev rifle at Stanislaw. Like centurions, Zbyshik and Jan stepped in front of their parents and little sister. Stop or I'll shoot, the slender one screamed. Sweat dripped down his blonde, oily sideburns. His lip quivered with anticipation. Easy, young man. Take it easy, Stanislaw said, gently positioning Adela and Rita behind him. The fat militiaman searched the flat. He smelled of alcohol and cigar smoke. In the boys' room, he pulled out the drawers, overturned them, and dumped the contents on the floor. With a combat knife, he slashed mattresses, eider-down comforters, and pillows. Closets were ransacked. Rita's room was next, followed by the maid's quarters, and finally the master bedroom. In the living room, bookcases and a sideboard were pushed over. Frustrated that no weapons or ammunition could be found on the premises, the fat soldier yelled, Lieutenant, all clear! In the entrance hallway, boots moved heel-toe, heel-toe over the glossy parquet floor. A colossal man with a large pinkish burn scar below one eye entered the parlor. Pinned to his blue cap was a red enamel five-point star. Adela's hands trembled at the sight of his sinister dark leather overcoat. It was the uniform of the Death Squad, the NKVD, political police. Are you Dr. Stanislaw Leopold Hart, Lieutenant Palach demanded. I have a warrant for your arrest. Where are you taking my husband, Adela said. She tried to hide her shaky voice. Daddy, don't go, Rita cried. Stanislaw bent down and kissed Rita's hands. They shared winks. She wrapped her arms around her father's neck and wouldn't let go. Stanislaw clasped Zbyshik and Jan's necks and held their faces close to his. I'll sort this out. Don't worry, he whispered. Watch over your mother. Stanislaw turned to Adela. That moment the last time she saw her husband, became etched in her memory. In her secret diary, Adela wrote, 
He left, kissing me, like always on the forehead. He said, I'll be back. I'm innocent. Take care of the children, I beg you. My stash left. I am looking through the window. He left. Tuesday, November 7th, 1939, the Hart family apartment. Before the stroke of midnight, wheels screeched, truck doors slammed, and combat boots stormed up the staircase. Twelve days had passed since Stanislaw's arrest. Open up, a deep voice hollered. Marinka unlocked the door. Three Russian soldiers entered the apartment. Going somewhere, Lieutenant Palach scoffed. He kicked Zbyshek's rucksack into the parlor. Can't bring this where you're going. Where? Where is he going? Adela blurted out. She was on the brink of hysteria. Adela sunk to her knees. I beg you, don't take my boy. He's done nothing wrong. Get dressed, the lieutenant shouted. We leave in three minutes. Zbyshek piled on long underwear, two pairs of wool pants, and two sweaters. He grabbed a fur-lined coat, hat, and gloves. The clothes he selected that terrifying night later saved his life. Adela followed the arrest officers down each flight of stairs. No, no, she kept saying, not my Zbyshek. Torture sessions began two weeks after Zbyshek was incarcerated in Zamarstinov prison. There were 20 prisoners in cell block number 51. At night, guards pulled one prisoner out of the cell. Hours later, his beaten body was thrown back in. Zbyshek was the only prisoner who hadn't been interrogated. He knew his turn would come. Stand up, face the wall, no talking, a jailer shouted through a small opening in the plank door. The prisoners had to stand all day. If someone fell over, guards rushed in. A rifle butt landed on the violator's back or legs. Silence was enforced the same way. Sleep was permitted a few hours each night. But who could sleep? Hunger had set in. Rations included watery potato soup twice a day. In the tomb-like dungeon, half the men lay down while the other half sat on them. The smell of piss, shit, and blood was pervasive. Worst of all, the shrieks and execrations of cellmates in the torture rooms down the hall. Mr. Leon Chipik was interrogated first. The longtime friend of the Hart family and Jewish owner of the best Italian leather shoe store in Lvov was nearly unconscious when the miscreants were done. Deep gashes marked his face. Blood dripped from his nose and mouth. An upperclassman from cadet school was next, then a friend from grammar school. The excruciating wait was finally over. I was punched in the face until they knocked me out, my father said matter-of-factly. Tell me the names of your bandit cadet friends, and this unpleasantness will be over, Lieutenant Palach said. Zbyshek remained silent. A pattern formed. Questions, silence, beatings. Questions, silence, beatings. For Zbyshek, it could have been a deadly test of wills. I never gave up names, my father said with great pride. I never signed their confession letter. A flicker of brightness came to my dad's eyes when I asked about the parcels he received during his confinement. Father was there. One day, there was a mix-up. A package addressed to Dr. Stanislaw Hart came to me. 
I refused it, so it would go back to him. Afterwards, the jailer returned with my parcel from mother. Spishik knew Stanislaw was alive. Bolstered by this revelation, he looked for his father in the hallways and the prison yard. On a wall in the latrine, he scratched the code Biba, his childhood nickname. If Stanislaw saw it, he would know his son was close by. Spishik hoped they would communicate short messages to each other. Dad, did Grandpa Stan see the code? No, he said. His voice began to crack. Your grandfather never answered. The doorbell at apartment number five on New World Street buzzed and buzzed. My father peered through the broken window panes covered with decorative iron bars. He shook the wooden double entry doors to his past. Dad, I don't think anyone's up there. The lights are off. A few more minutes, he said, looking weary, leaning on his cane. We were on our first and only father-daughter trip to Poland and Ukraine six years before he died. When I first suggested going to Lviv, my father's hazel eyes danced the mazurka behind his trifocal glasses. He finally felt safe traveling to Ukraine one year after its independence from Russia. Back then, my father was fighting the rapid progression of Parkinson's disease. He hadn't been to his home city in 50 years. We had to go. Perhaps it was for the best that he never went inside his childhood home. Maybe it would have reignited old nightmares. Worse yet, what if new horrors stirred in his subconscious? Casting off his disappointment, he said, Let's go to Kosciusko Park. I played Chopin at an outdoor concert there when I was eight years old. He began to walk up New World Street with renewed vigor. I looped my arm through my father's to steady his gait. Are you okay, Dad, I asked, holding his shaking hand in mine. Never you mind, he said in a strong Polish accent. It's nothing for your worries. Subscribe to Literal Lab Podcast on Spotify.